Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-12 Antonii Sixty-six years after his death, Mark Antony's legacy remained complicated. His grandson Germanicus had come closest to fulfilling his dream of ruling over the entire Roman world. But, of course, the young prince had been killed, as had his eldest sons Nero and Drusus. In fact, the Octavian branch had been so thoroughly denuded that only three male heirs remained. Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus, Claudius, and Caligula, which really meant two male heirs, since everyone knew Claudius was nothing but a mentally deficient embarrassment. Other branches of the family held more promise. Antony's granddaughter Pythodorus, now 65 years old, still reigned as queen of Pontus, with her son Polymon II poised to succeed her. Pythodorus's daughter, Antonia Tryphena, had married the Thracian prince Cotus VIII back in 11 BC. Since then, civil war, murder, flight, and other intrigues, including a trial overseen by Tiberius, had elevated Tryphena to Queen of Thrace, alongside her son, King Rheomatalces II. Her daughter, Gepipyrus, was queen of the Bosporan kingdom and her two other children would soon rule Thrace and Lesser Armenia. And yes, I've posted a helpful family tree up on the Ancient World website. The third child of Queen Pythodorus was Xenoartoxius, who Germanicus had elevated to King of Armenia back in 18 AD. For the next 17 years, his client kingdom stood as a stable pro-Roman buffer against Parthian expansion. But then, in 35 AD, Xenoartoxius died, and Armenia was once again up for grabs. 
By this point, Artabanus III, the raised-by-nomads, tough-as-nails Parthian king, had been on the throne for over two decades, which meant he'd become pretty adept at eliminating family rivals and putting down rebellions across the vast Parthian empire. Under the popular Roman-backed Xenoartoxius, Armenia had remained off-limits. But the Armenian king had died without heirs, and Artabanus decided to test Rome's resolve by pressuring the Armenians to accept his son Arsaces for a king. Arriving at the capital of Artaxata at the head of a large army, Arsaces was quickly installed on the Armenian throne. What would Rome do? The assumption was little. After all, the Roman emperor Tiberius was 77 years old and been living in relative isolation for the past nine years. What would he care about matters in the remote Roman East? Much to Artabanus' surprise, Rome's response was both immediate and vigorous. First, Tiberius invited two Iberian princes, that's the Iberian near the Caspian Sea, named Mithridates and Pherasmenes, to invade Armenia and claim the throne. To pave the way, the two princes bribed Arsaces's servants to poison the new king. Once he was dead, Mithridates and Pherasmenes invaded the country and took the capital by force. King Artabanus of Parthia sent a second son named Erodes to avenge his brother and reclaim the Armenian throne. The Parthian army under Erodes met the Iberian army under Pherasmenes near the southern passes into Armenia. The Iberian prince won the battle, and Erodes was put to flight. The frustrated king Artabanus III considered raising a larger force to invade Armenia. But the new Syrian governor, Lucius Vitellius, let it be known that any such move would bring a full Roman response. Artabanus backed down, and Prince Mithridates of Iberia became King Mithridates I of Armenia. At the same time, Tiberius also struck directly at Parthia itself. His main weapon was Tiridates, the grandson of Phraates IV, and another long-term Roman hostage. Parthian nobles hostile to Artabanus assured Tiberius they could unseat him and place Tiridates on the Parthian throne. The coup was successful, Artabanus fled east, and Tiridates was made king of Parthia. Unfortunately, Tiridates had zero Parthian street cred, and the east was Artabanus's old power base anyway. Later that year, Artabanus returned, at the head of a large Scythian army, and reclaimed the Parthian throne. Tiridates was forced to flee back to the safety of Roman Syria. So, by 36 AD, the East had pretty much returned to the status quo, with a loyal Roman client king in Armenia, and King Artabanus III secure on the Parthian throne. The only change was that Armenia was no longer ruled by an heir of Mark Antony. 
Far to the west, Antony's grandson Ptolemy I had ruled the Roman client kingdom of Mauritania for over a dozen years. His period of sole rule had coincided with two factors, the end of large-scale tribal unrest and the increasing isolation of Tiberius both of which meant that direct Roman involvement in the affairs of Mauritania had slowed to a trickle, which, under the blood-soaked rule of Tiberius, was pretty much the best-case scenario. Grain shipments continued their runs, delegations came and went, and all the while the wealth of Mauritania continued to grow. Oh, and sometime during those years Ptolemy'd also gotten married— We don't know precisely when, and we don't know how they met, but his bride's name, Julia Urania, is significant. The name Urania is tied to the royal family of Emesa, a quasi-independent kingdom lying on the borders of Syria and Phoenicia. Back in 20 BC, an Emesene noble named Iamblichus had been placed on the throne by Octavian and granted Roman citizenship. In 14 AD, he was succeeded by a cousin named Gaius Julius Sampsigerimus, in honor of Octavian. Julia Urania was likely another royal relative, also named in Octavian's honor. Regardless of the whys and wherefores, her marriage to Ptolemy instantly resulted in my favorite character name of the entire series. Yep, you guessed it. Julia Urania, the Queen of Mauritania. Oh my god, I've been waiting 12 episodes to say that. And boy, does it feel good. And as if that weren't enough, how about this? I'm about to kill off Tiberius. That's right, in 37 AD, at the age of 79, Tiberius finally died in the town of Messenum in coastal Campania. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even care what he was doing there. Let's just assume he was attending a puppy-strangling seminar. And by the way, I've also decided to spare you and myself a discussion of all the crazy, depraved sexual stuff he was occupying his time with for all those years on his isolated island retreat. Can we all just agree that Tiberius turned out to be a major disappointment in pretty much every conceivable way? Good, then we can all move on. Actually, there's one aspect of Tiberius's later years that bears mentioning. For the last six years of his life, from 31 to 37 AD, Tiberius had a constant companion with him on Capri. Who, you ask? His adopted grandson, Gaius Julius Caesar Germanicus, better known to us as Caligula. We don't know what he did, we don't know what he saw, we don't know what he knew, and we perhaps know least of all why Tiberius let him live. It's been suggested that Caligula was a gifted natural actor, able to be whatever Tiberius wanted at any given moment. But seriously, that must have been a non-stop Daniel Day-Lewis-level performance for the better part of six years. And who was Caligula performing for? 
the likely murderer of his father, his mother, and his two older brothers, not to mention the man who could decide to throw him from the balcony on a whim at any given moment. What kind of person emerges from the other side of that ordeal? Let's all find out together. Over the past six years, Caligula had also befriended the new Praetorian prefect, Navius Sutorius Macro. This relationship helped him get the ball rolling in a few critical ways. First, according to later rumor, Tiberius was taking a bit too long to die, and either Macro or Caligula himself finished the job with a pillow. Second, the 25-year-old Caligula was technically only co-heir, alongside Tiberius's grandson, 18-year-old Tiberius Gemellus. So Caligula had Macro take Tiberius's will to the Senate and have the part about Gemellus declared null and void, since Tiberius had clearly been senile when he wrote it. This quick legal maneuver recast Caligula as sole heir. Despite the power play against Gemellus, it's likely that no Roman ruler ever started out with more public goodwill than Caligula. After Tiberius, pretty much any change would have been a distinct improvement. But the Romans got far more than that. They got the eldest surviving son of the legendary Germanicus, not to mention the great-grandson of both Mark Antony and the divine Augustus. How could it signify anything but a new golden age for Rome? And you know what? It actually kind of started out that way. Caligula faithfully executed the remainder of Tiberius's will, then dutifully brought back the remains of his dead relatives for proper interment in the Augustan mausoleum. He put an end to the treason trials, lowered taxes, gave bonuses to the legions, and recalled Roman citizens who'd been sent into exile. Suetonius speaks of 160,000 animals being sacrificed to Caligula's health during three months of public celebrations. Unfortunately, the sacrifices didn't really take, and Caligula fell deathly ill around seven months into his reign. And, though it's probably more complicated, the illness is usually taken as the dividing line between the reigns of good Caligula and bad Caligula, who may have really just been bad Caligula all along, but after the illness, the wheels really came off the crazy train. Such as? Well, I'm not sure you can count Caligula's murder of Gemellus, since both Octavian and Tiberius had also killed potential rivals. But it was his first straightforward murderous act, and upsetting enough to their mutual grandmother, Antonia Minor, that she apparently committed suicide. After all she'd endured, it's hard to picture this one murder being the catalyst. More likely, it was what it symbolized, the loss of any hope that Caligula's rule might restore the fortunes of the Julians. And, sure enough, Caligula soon turned his attention to his other surviving relatives, slating most of them for death or exile. One notable exception was his 48-year-old uncle, Claudius, who we mostly kept around to make fun of. 
Caligula's sisters, Livilla and Agrippina the Younger, were eventually exiled from Rome, though his favorite sister, Drusilla, was allowed to stay. In fact, Caligula loved Drusilla so much that he had her named as his official heir, the first Roman woman to be so designated. For months, the two siblings remained inseparable, and her sudden death by illness in 38 AD was an earth-shattering loss. On Caligula's orders, Drusilla was deified by the Roman Senate, with the title of Panthea, or All-Goddess. The young emperor mourned at her funeral as if he'd been her husband. The loss even had echoes in distant Mauritania. Shortly after Drusilla's death, Ptolemy and Julia Urania had their first child, a daughter. In memory of Caligula's sister, and also Ptolemy's sister, who died much younger, the girl was named Drusilla. So what did Ptolemy know about Caligula's early reign? Probably a great deal. He was a powerful client king with extensive Roman contacts. He was also a member of the royal family and the emperor's cousin. What Ptolemy would have made of all the stories and rumors is another matter. Much like Juba's connection with Tiberius had blinded him to the man's darker side, it's possible that Ptolemy's link with Germanicus made him view Caligula's actions in a less sinister light. But still, Caligula's dealings with eastern client kings were a potential cause for concern. For reasons unknown, after a year on the throne, the new Armenian king Mithridates was deposed and arrested on Caligula's orders. When Queen Pythodorus of Pontus finally died in 38 AD, the succession of her son Polymon II went unchallenged. But Pythodorus's daughter, Queen Tryphena of Thrace, fared less well. When her son and co-ruler, Rheumatalces II, died young, Caligula ordered Tryphena to abdicate the Thracian throne in favor of her daughter and her cousin. The emperor did give Tryphena an interesting follow-on career. She was made high priestess of the cult of his dead sister Drusilla in the Anatolian city of Cyzicus. Soon after assuming the role, Tryphena drops out of the historical record, with one notable exception. In Romans 16 verse 12, St. Paul sends his greetings to a prominent Tryphena who works for the Lord. The passage hints that the former Thracian queen may have been an early Christian convert. Also in 38 AD, the longtime ruler of Parthia, King Artabanus III, finally died, and was succeeded by his son, Vardanis I. His elevation was challenged by his adopted brother, Gotarzes II, and the Parthian Empire embarked on seven years of civil war. Vardanis managed to keep the upper hand and eventually capture the rebel stronghold of Seleucia on the Tigris. Vardanis also briefly considered conquering the now kingless Armenia, but decided not to antagonize the Romans. Meanwhile, in the nearby Roman province of Syria, Lucius Vitellius was in the middle of an uneventful four-year governorship. 
His one notable act, at least in retrospect, was his 36 AD removal of the Roman prefect of neighboring Judea, a man named Pontius Pilate, for putting down a Samaritan revolt with undue harshness. And since I last left Judea way back in 4 AD, I really want to touch on it for at least a minute. Which I know is kind of crazy, since it's the most complicated place in the region, but here goes. Okay, 4 AD. Juba's ex-wife Glaphyra dead, Herod Archelaus banished to Gaul, and his lands converted into a Roman province. But his lands were only the biggest chunk of Judea, and the remaining bits were mainly split between his two brothers, Herod Antipas and Philip the Tetrarch. When Philip died in 34 AD, his lands were annexed to Roman Syria. But Herod Antipas continued to rule Galilee and Perea until 39 AD, when Caligula gave his territories, and those previously held by Philip, to Herod Agrippa. Who was Herod Agrippa? Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great through his strangled Hasmonean son, Aristobulus, brother of his strangled Hasmonean son, Alexander, the one who'd been married to Glaphyra. But okay, don't worry too much about keeping the lineage straight. The important part is this. Since his father's strangulation, Herod Agrippa had been raised in Rome as foster son of Tiberius and close friend of both Tiberius's son Drusus and his nephew Claudius. In fact, Herod Agrippa had later educated Tiberius's grandson Gamellus and also become very close with Caligula. And that last part pretty much explains the big Judean land grant. Back in Rome, the next two years of Caligula's rule were dominated by a few major themes. The first was horrible mismanagement of the empire's finances. Lowering taxes while pushing spending through the roof quickly burned through the vast Roman treasury amassed by Tiberius. Where did the money go? Well, some spending was actually a pretty good investment like improving harbors so more grain could be shipped from Egypt and North Africa. Other projects, like temples, theaters, racetracks, aqueducts, city walls, roads, and an expansion of the royal palace, would have probably been considered reasonable in better economic times. And then there was the enormous pontoon bridge Caligula ordered built across the Bay of Baie a feat inspired by Xerxes' crossing of the Hellespont, so he could ride back and forth across it on his horse. Or the construction of two massive ships, among the largest in the ancient world, to serve as his floating palaces. These, to put it mildly, were not reasonable expenses. And, of course, trying to pay for all this leads us to the second major theme. Give me all your money. 
Caligula used dozens of different approaches. Accusing, trying, and executing wealthy citizens to obtain their estates, accusing highway commissioners of embezzlement and forcing them to pay fines, inventing new priesthoods and making people pay to join them, and instituting new taxes on everything he could think of. If it brought in money, Caligula was all for it. And I guess the third major theme of Caligula's reign would be violence, depravity, and general craziness. But of course, that's the area where it's hardest to separate fact from later slander. For our purposes, it's probably enough to quote Caligula himself, who supposedly said he didn't care if the Romans hated him as long as they feared him. When the Senate began to oppose his more egregious measures, Caligula responded by ordering up a fresh round of treason trials. And this was probably the turning point. Caligula was only 28 years old, and already embracing the worst excesses of Tiberius. There was absolutely no way the empire could survive another 30, 40, even 50 years of this type of blatant misrule. And that, of course, is when the conspiracy started. Back in Mauritania, Ptolemy likely first heard of the foiled conspiracy of Marcus Lepidus, the son of Julia the Younger, which kind of makes him a third-generation conspirator. Anyway, Lepidus had long been close to Caligula, and even been married to his sister Drusilla. But in 39 AD, Caligula produced letters about an adulterous affair and a treasonous plot, and Lepidus was tried and executed. Soon afterwards, another figure from Caligula's inner circle fell victim to similar accusations. This time, it was the legate of Germania Superior, Gnaeus Cornelius Lentulus Gaetulicus. Gnaeus's father, Cassus, was the former African proconsul who'd fought native tribes alongside Juba and Ptolemy back in 6 AD. Gnaeus was recalled to Rome and also tried and executed. So far, this remote connection was the closest a conspiracy'd come to touching Caesarea. And, even if he'd grown disillusioned with his new emperor, Ptolemy still likely believed he could count on his ongoing neglect. Mauritania was a loyal and stable client kingdom, a critical source of grain and a stable bulwark against hostile tribes. There was no there-there to draw Caligula's attention from what were surely more pressing matters in the capital. Like all Roman client kings, Ptolemy pretty much had one job. Reflect the glory that is Rome, but without shining too much light of your own. His father had always been adept at striking the perfect balance. But then Juba had ruled Mauritania under the watchful eye of his foster uncle and foster brother, men who claimed both his loyalty and his love. During his seventeen years of sole rule, Ptolemy had only known a detached and paranoid Tiberius and an active and paranoid Caligula. In the current scenario, love was no longer a factor, and loyalty a far more calculated affair. 
In 40 AD, Ptolemy decided to commemorate his kingdom's wealth through the issue of Mauritania's first gold coins. He also decided to stamp the coins with the defining image of his reign, the triumphal regalia, including a wreath and scepter, that marked him as a friend of the Roman people. It was pride, sure, but pride well justified. After nearly two decades in power, Ptolemy had become a respected king in his own right. He was also, of course, a Ptolemy and Antonius and a descendant of Numidian kings, as well as elder cousin to the current Roman emperor. And, perhaps most importantly, he was now father to a young daughter, who'd continue the Mauritanian dynasty. The letter came to Caesarea that same year. Caligula had requested his cousin's presence in Rome for a ceremony of recognition. Not having been to the capital for years, if not decades, Ptolemy likely viewed the summons with a mix of wariness and curiosity. But however he viewed it, the 53-year-old client king was bound to comply. Taking ship in Caesarea, Ptolemy set out for the Roman port of Ostia, then traveled up the Ostian Way toward the capital. Some part of him may have realized he was walking in his mother's footsteps of seventy years before, and imagined her first seeing Rome as a ten-year-old Egyptian captive. The welcome arranged for Ptolemy was likely far more grand— a delegation of high officials and prominent citizens, along with a few old friends and surviving family. On the day of the event, King Ptolemy of Mauritania arrived at the venue to greet the emperor and be formally presented to the Roman people. He must have made a striking appearance, draped in his purple toga trimmed in gold and bearing his royal scepter. Of course, everyone knew who he was, and all the ancient and noble bloodlines that he represented. They also knew how Caligula had embroidered his own lineage, by spreading the fiction that his mother Agrippina wasn't really Agrippa's daughter, but instead the product of incest between Octavian and his daughter Julia. Caligula gave his cousin Ptolemy all due honors— and reaffirmed Rome's friendship and support. It's not recorded how the emperor was dressed for the occasion. It wasn't unheard of for Caligula to dress up like a god, or like Alexander the Great, or in fine silks ornamented with jewels, or, for that matter, in any other style that caught his momentary fancy. Regardless, two things are clear— Whatever he wore would have been a long stretch from the simple toga favored by his great-grandfather Octavian. And nothing he wore, either in appearance or honor, would have come close to matching the splendor of Ptolemy's triumphal regalia. As for what happened next, none of the particulars are known, but we can indulge in a bit of speculation. Ptolemy was likely assigned a bodyguard or escort while in Rome. The role may have been filled by a military tribune, 
a young man of senatorial rank with political ambitions and fiercely loyal to the emperor. The setting was likely a chamber or corridor of the royal palace, or possibly a lavish villa on the Palatine Hill, set aside for visiting dignitaries. The deed may have been left to one trusted man, but I find that unlikely. Ptolemy was a formidable presence and a veteran of numerous conflicts. The hope that even unarmed, he'd be easy prey was a small one. More likely, he and his escort simply arrived at a prearranged location, full of armed men dressed in imperial regalia, and the next instant, swords were drawn. With the gift of foresight, Ptolemy may have taken small comfort in knowing that, in his memory, Mauritania would soon explode into a fierce rebellion against Rome or that within the year Caligula himself would be brutally assassinated. But be that as it may, the logic of the moment was inevitable. Soon, or soon enough, the last king of Mauritania lay dead upon the ground.